0: Okay, guys, we are in the third week of a series that we're calling Humanity Reclaimed. And here's the goal that we're going to be, the the topic that we're going to be focused on every week is harping on this idea that God sees this broken, messed up world, and he has worked through Jesus to rescue it and renew it. God sees you and he sees me, the broken, sinful human individuals that we are. And he's worked through Jesus to rescue us and renew us. Through Jesus, God is rescuing the world. Through Jesus, God is reclaiming our humanity. And so we started two weeks ago by talking about how this all began. Where did this all start? How did God make things? And we saw that God created this beautiful creation. And over it, he put human beings, man and woman, to live in relationship with him and care for creation, rule over it. By doing all the things they do on a regular basis. Organizing, cooking, business, teaching, all those things. This is how it began. They were live in fellowship with God, rule over what He's made. But human beings broke that relationship. They rejected submission to God. They reached out and tried to define good on their own. And brought death into their own experience. And death into the world. It was the fall. is what we talked about last week. And before we move on and fully talk about what Jesus has done how he has worked to rescue and renew things. What we're going to talk about this week is how you and I, because we feel the brokenness in ourselves, because we feel the brokenness in the world, we're still so prone, even if we're Christians, we are still so prone to turn to things for life that can never give us life. God warns us about this so that he might turn us to find life in Jesus. He warns us about the ways that we seek after things that will not satisfy, so that we might find true satisfaction. And as I was thinking about tonight, I was reminded of this book that I read last year. How many of you guys have heard of the book or the movie In the Heart of the Sea? It's about a whale ship and this crazy experience of surviving. Just a few of you. Um, So how many of you are familiar with Moby Dick? We'll we'll start there. (laughs) Moby Dick, okay. Okay. So the historical basis for Moby Dick is actually this boat called the Ship Essex. And after it had had a lot of problems, just like a really terrible journey to begin with, it's way off at the extent of its journey. And this gigantic sperm whale is kind of like swimming away from the boat. And then it turns around and comes and rams the boat, totally destroys it. And these men are now thousands of miles away from any civilization in these tiny little rowboats. And they have to try to make it. And part of what is described in this book is just the experience of one, starving, and then two, dying of thirst. And these guys are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Every day, they are exposed out in the boat. The sun is beating down on them. They're covered with the salt spray of the ocean, and they can only have this much water each day. So like day after day, they're getting thirstier and thirstier, and like terrible things are happening to their bodies, right? And I won't get into that. It's like terrifying. But on the other hand, they're they're also starving, and the only thing they have to eat is something called that's called hardtack, which is this really dry biscuit material. And guess how you preserve bread material? With salt. (laughs) And so, while they're dying of thirst, they have to eat this really dry, salty material. They're trying to preserve life by eating something that actually dehydrates them while they're dying of thirst. And this is just a physical picture of what all of us do on a daily basis. We turn to things that we think will provide life for us that actually sap away life from us. This is what's happening at a spiritual level day in, day out for us, and often it's happening at a subconscious level. So what God has done in his word is to raise this to our attention. He's given us warning signs to say, these are leaky wells You cannot find satisfaction here. Turn to my son. Find life and satisfaction in him. And so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to walk us through four different leaky wells. And instead of talking about the ways that I think it might play out in your life, I'm actually just going to talk about how it's played out in my life. Okay? There's two reasons why I'm going to do that. One, I want you guys to know me a little bit better. But then two, I want you to know that I have a messy past. (laughs) I'm a pastor, yes, I love Jesus, but I've got a lot of junk, I almost said in my trunk, but that's not true, a lot of junk in my past, Um, I am not a perfect human being, and I still struggle regularly, and I want you to know that, so that you don't think that this is some sort of unrealistic, spiritual, everything's always great sort of thing, okay, we're all in this together, as regular human beings, we're all prone to look the wrong direction. God in mercy points us to Jesus. OK? So we're going to start tonight by looking at a text from Jeremiah. Uh, and Roberto, I can't get it on my phone. Would you mind hitting to the next slide? Kind of the verse that's going to focus us for tonight is Jeremiah 2:12 to13. Uh, And this this is what the Lord says to his rebellious people in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. Take a look up on the screen with me. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Instead of finding life in God, human beings repeatedly look to leaky wells to try to fix the brokenness that they feel to try to find life. And they turn only to death when they do that. God warns His people, there's a lot of different ways that you're going to look for satisfaction for life. These will not satisfy These do not hold the water that you need. Take a look at that imagery. God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. Throughout the Bible, spiritual life is described in terms of water, which makes sense in a dry agrarian culture, right? Life comes with water. When you don't have water, things die. And so this is just a very practical, tangible picture. But the fountain of living waters is actually this fresh, bubbling brook. You can think of it that way. It's cool. It's refreshing. Not only does it functionally provide life, but it's good and delightful. And God uses this image to describe himself. This is what you could have from me. But instead, my people have turned and they've, in the dry dirt, tried to cut wells from themselves. They don't even hold water. And so we're going to talk about four wells tonight. We're going to talk about the the leaky well of self. We're going to talk about the leaky well of others, of the world, and of heartless religion. These are four different leaky wells that we're going to discuss. I'm going to talk about how I've seen it kind of play out in my life whenever I turn to these leaky wells for satisfaction for life. And then I hope that this will be kind of ringing some bells for you that you can relate to. So let's go ahead and start by looking at the first leaky well uh, in Jeremiah 17:5 through 6 God says this He says cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord he is like a shrub in the desert and he shall not see any good come he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited land of salt This really encapsulates looking to self as well as to others. This is the broad tendency that we have to look to human strength to deliver us, to look to myself to provide life and satisfaction, to look to others to provide life and satisfaction. So let's just start with self. We turn to the leaky well of ourselves in order to fix the brokenness that we feel. Before I became a Christian, this is... The way that I viewed my life, uh, and I wonder if you can relate, I had this picture in my mind of a future version of me. Uh, I had cut abs, I had thicker arms, uh, but at the same time as being like physically fit, I also knew a lot, right? So I was very smart, but not only was I very like, good-looking and smart, but everybody loved me, right? Like This is the picture that I had of myself. Uh, I lived in sort of like, sort of that good middle ground where you don't have too much, but you don't also have too little. This is like the picture that I had, and this is what I told myself on repeat. Once I get there, everything's going to be better. So just a little bit more time in working out, and a little bit more time in studying and becoming smarter, a little bit more time in fostering relationships with people and kind of building up my social clout, on and on then things will be okay. Yes, I feel weird right now. Yes, I lack peace. But there's coming a time whenever all these other things will just fall into place and I'll be at peace. I'll be at rest. And here's the irony that only over time in Jesus did I realize it's just a lie. Like, I'm messed up to begin with. I am dissatisfying to myself. And then what do I do? I say, well, let me just try to do better. Like, I I'm, know I'm, I'm not batting great right now, but let me just kind of put a little bit more weight on and try harder. And then what I found is that only breeds guilt, frustration, and disappointment. And yet, at the same time, I just kept feeding myself the same lie. But maybe in a couple years, you know, maybe once I get a little bit better at this or get a little bit better at that, Then I'll finally get there. Whenever I look to myself, I'm looking at the problem. And I cannot be the solution if I'm the problem. And I didn't realize that until Jesus came into the picture. And we'll talk more about that later on. But I still struggle with this mindset. Like, it just gets baptized and kind of Christianized as a Christian. Like, I'm not batting 100 at reading the Bible and praying, of oh, I'm a pastor. Like, that's not 100% for me. But there's coming a day whenever I'm going to be great at it. Right? I'm not great in every interaction that I have with people. Like, I can always be more gracious. I can always be more loving. And I get disappointed in myself when I'm not. But there's coming a day whenever I'm going to get better at this. It's this same sad story that I've been telling myself It just kind of gets reformulated with like a church robe on it as a Christian. Whenever I look to myself as the solution to the problem of myself, that's just irrational. It's not going to work. It's going to be producing frustration, disappointment, and just dryness. As the Lord says, it'll be like living in a desert with nothing to drink. You won't bear fruit. And this is what I experienced but it's not just that I look to myself, it's also that I look to other people to give me satisfaction and meeting and security. And this played out in a number of different ways, but primarily, especially whenever I was in high school, it played out in two big ways. Before I became a Christian, it was really big with my family. So I really cared about what my parents thought of me and I wanted their approval very, very badly. And it didn't matter if they like, approved of the real me, Because I would just kind of set up a facade of who they wanted me to be, and I catered to that facade. And if they approved of that fake me, then I was great. All felt right and at peace in the world. If there was no conflict in my home, then I felt like everything was okay. But as soon as I began to lose my parents' approval, as soon as there was conflict in the house, it wasn't just that, ooh, things feel tense and I feel uncomfortable. It was that I felt like I was imploding as a person. Have you ever had that? That irrational anxiety and fear and discouragement that just seizes you in a moment's notice. That's pointing out something that you're trusting in in a way that you can only trust God. And I felt that over and over with my family. If conflict entered in, if I lost my parents' approval, it was like my whole world was collapsing because I had pinned everything on them also looked to this future version of a relationship, right? We all kind of do this. But for me, it was like I have this beautiful person in mind, which actually has come to pass. Um, But along with this beauty, I saw this huge list of character traits, right? It's like 50 different things to make this perfect person for me. And whenever I looked about or thought about how a relationship would work, there would be no conflict. She would always be affirming to me. We would only just grow and grow in peace and harmony and love, and we would just flourish forever. Right? This is the movie line that we're all sold, right? There's conflict on the front end, but hey, it all just goes better after that. This is subconsciously what I would pursue, what I was thinking, hey, that's finally gonna be what makes me feel okay. Yes, I feel lonely right now. Yes, I feel discouraged right now. Yes, I feel like something is off. But that person... Is coming there's that one person out there and they're going to come in and fulfill me they're going to be everything that I want and more and then I'll finally be at peace then I'll finally be satisfied and I'll tell you what guys we Amy and I have a wonderful relationship a rich beautiful relationship that I would not trade for anything we've been married for six years and she is more my friend now I think she's more beautiful now we are Love partnering together in ministry. I see more things about her than I ever knew to begin with. But she does not fulfill me. Amy is a human being. I've sinned against her. She sinned against me. We have disappointed each other. She does not fulfill me. This is just another one of those leaky wells that we turn to thinking that finally I'm going to have peace. Finally I'm going to have life. And we find it to be disappointing. We find it to be a dead end. We find it actually to be that hardtack filled with salt and it's dry and as we're eating it trying to preserve our lives it's actually dehydrating us more and more. This is the empty leaky well of turning to humans whether that's ourselves or other people. These things can't satisfy. I'm a sinner and so is everybody else. If I can't be the solution to the problem nobody else can be for me. Friends, family, spouse, doesn't matter. It's just not going to work. But it's not just trusting in humans, it's also looking to the pleasures of the world. So we see that in 1 John 2, Roberto, yeah, thank you, brother. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. Let me flip on over. John the Apostle says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. This is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Sometimes this language of the world is used by Christians in sort of this weird way. Where it's like, God hates everything he made. And he's going to rescue you out of it so you can go and be in heaven. And be away from this whole physical existence. Because it's really a screwed up mess. And that's not how John is using that word world here in this text. If you look at John 3.16 from the gospel. It says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to rescue it. Remember, we talked about God created everything good. It's not that God changed his mind. When John here in John, 1 John 2 is saying, do not love the world or the things in the world, he defines what he means. Look at verse 16. The desires of the flesh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are part of the corrupt world in rebellion against God that John is talking about. These are the things that we are tempted to turn to to find life, satisfaction, meaning, and find to be a leaky well. And so, in my personal experience, I, I've seen this play out with material possessions. Uh, how many of you guys are from the Houston area? Okay, so there's a few of you. I grew up in the woodlands, just 45 minutes north of Houston. It's kind of the epitome of suburbia, in my opinion. Um, but it's like, it's like a particular brand of suburbia where... High school kids are driving Maseratis and Infinities and BMWs to school. Like, no kidding, this is like everyday life out in the woodlands. Gigantic houses, incredible shopping centers all over. And for me, whenever we moved there in sixth grade, it was really weird. It was overwhelming. But by the time I was hitting like 10th grade, it was like the air that I breathed, you know. Um, And my family wasn't necessarily like at the very, very top, but we were doing well. And so what I found in myself is that after living in that for years, there would be this pattern that would play out. I would have like a rough week. Sometimes it would be somebody who upset me or I felt disappointed by something. But most often what it would be is just this gnawing feeling of something feels weird. I feel off. I don't have peace. I'm kind of generally frustrated all the time. Uh, I feel just incomplete. And I would never like consciously say it, but it would just kind of burb, burble, burble within me. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of stewing me. And every Friday, here's what would happen: Friday would roll around, and just subconsciously, I would go to the mall, and I would buy video games, and movies, and CDs, and fill in the blank, just a bunch of different things. And then afterwards, I would go home. And it would be like, I feel okay now. Like everything's good. And I'm happy. And I feel satisfied. And then three days later, it would start to seep in again. And I'd start to feel off. Disappointed. Frustrated. And for whatever reason, like I just don't realize it. That's just the pattern of how my life was. It was just... Feel off, feel weird, try to address it by buying things. And then feel some relief, feel some joy in the midst of that. And then next week, wash, rinse, repeat. This was the way that my life ran, and it never delivered in a final, ultimate way. I also saw this play out with sexuality. Just in the same way that material possessions are a gift, but whenever you exalt it to the ultimate, it will disappoint you. In the same way, sexuality, if we enjoy it within the boundaries that God gave it, it's a gift. But if we exalt it as the ultimate thing that will satisfy us, it will make us its slave. It will enslave us. And so for me, early on, I got introduced to pornography as a kid. By the time I was about midway through high school, I was thoroughly wrapped up in it. And, Nobody would lie to you and say that on the early stages, like it's not satisfying or enjoyable. It was, which is why I stayed in it. And then there's this weird spot where it goes from being a satisfactory thing to a necessity. And that's where the shame enters in, that's where the guilt enters in, and that's where the desperation to change comes. And yet you can't cut the ties. This is how I felt, this is how I lived for years. There's this great quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace uh, who has a questionable spiritual standing, had a questionable spiritual understanding, but this is what he says, and I think it's profound. He delivered this at a, a commencement address at Kenyon College. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing, whether it's Jesus, or Yahweh, or Allah, or the Buddhist principles, whatever it is, David says, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. That's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Can we go one more, Roberto? Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, the under the surface thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. This is not a pastor. This is not a theologian. This is an American novelist, and three years after saying this, committed suicide. But such deep, powerful insight, and it's all because you and I know what this is like. We take good things that God gives us as a gift, and we exalt it to the ultimate level, and it enslaves us, and it becomes our harsh master. David Foster Wallace understood it. He puts our experience to words. When we turn to the pleasures of this world, whether that's lusts of the flesh, food, sex, alcohol, whatever it is, or whatever looks good, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, the things that we look to, possessions or status or prestige, these things will lead us astray. These things are that hardtack that continues to dehydrate us as we're dying of thirst. We're looking for life and finding it in the wrong places. And then finally, we turn not just to other people or to ourselves or to the world's pleasures, but we also turn to heartless religion. This isn't just an outside-of-the-church sort of problem. This also affects us within the church. So in Matthew 23, we have a pretty significant chapter where Jesus is... Laying bare the corrupt nature of heartless religion. And he's doing so by speaking to guys who are called scribes and Pharisees. And we make a mistake in thinking that Jesus is just upset with them. And we don't think about, well, that has something to say to me too. So here's what Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees. Verses 27 to 28 in chapter 23 of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also, while you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus points to the religious teachers of his day, to the theologians, to the pastors of his day, and says, religion that is empty inside that doesn't have a love for God, that doesn't have a love for people, but is really just concerned with what things look like on the outside, it's bankrupt. It is bankrupt. Heartless religion is just another leaky well. Before I became a Christian, I saw this play out in my own life. I had this image that I had to make myself clean to be acceptable to God. And if I could put it this way, I had a knowledge of Jesus, but here's what Jesus did. God is up here in this gigantic, beautiful place, but there's a huge vault door closing him in. And the only way to get to that vaulted door is by climbing this gigantic mountain. And what Jesus did is he comes in and he opens the door and says, oh, who want to come in? Climb on up. And so to be acceptable to God, I had to climb my way up to him to experience his presence. I had to climb up. I had to clean myself up in order to be acceptable to God. Again, this is just problem number one, turning to self, dressed up in a religious garb. This is trying to make the problem the solution, and it's never going to work. If I'm a sinner, I can't make myself acceptable to God. If My heart is broken and bent to turn to these other things. There's no way that I'm going to be able to climb up to God. But I've experienced it after becoming a Christian as well. There's been times in my life where pursuing Christian knowledge became separated from love. So about midway through college, I began to realize, ooh, whenever I say fancy, profound things like in a group setting, everybody oohs and ahs. And it's awesome. It makes me feel so good about myself. And they all think that I'm great and profound. Like that's, I want more of that. And as I pursued a knowledge of the Bible, as I pursued knowledge of theology, and love for God and love for people began to drift away, I just began to function in this heartless religion. Like knowledge for knowledge's sake. Being seen to be awesome and have it all together, that's what my heart longed for. And then somewhere along the line I realized, man, what I know really doesn't make a dang bit of difference if it doesn't change the way I live. It is empty. It is trash before the living God if I don't do anything in love for Him and love for others. Knowledge separated from love for God is empty and it provides no life. And we could go on and on, all the different religious activities, going to church, serving, on and on we could go. It doesn't matter what you put in that slot. If you pursue that, away from the love of God and love of others. It is heartless heartless religion, and it will not satisfy. These are the warning signs that God gives us. This is that hard tack, that dry, salty bread that we eat as we're dying of thirst. And God says, I have something so much better for you. Turn away from these things and look to my son. So if we look at John 7, to close out our night, John 7 Verses 37 through 39. We see the provision of God through Jesus. Jesus is at a feast <clears throat> and he stands up disruptively in the midst of the feast, and this is what he says before the crowds. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is better than me. Jesus is better than others. Jesus is better than the pleasures of this world. Jesus is better than heartless religion. Why? Because in Him, God pours out life. In Him, God pours out satisfaction. In Him, God pours out peace, everything that we need. Notice, Jesus says, if you believe in Him, if you trust Him, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Going back to that text from Jeremiah, my people forsook this in me. They turned away. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? God hasn't revoked that. It's available to you if you trust me. Just receive it as a gift. And so in my experience, I have found that Jesus is better than each one of these things. Jesus is better than turning to myself. In love, Jesus honestly acknowledges who I am in all my busted up brokenness, and he covers me with grace. He sees me for who I am, And still fully loves me. I've never experienced that. But I've gotten a glimpse of it. In a human relationship with my wife. Where she has seen me frustrated. She has seen me sin. And make a fool of myself. She has seen me harsh. And anxious. In all the ways that you want to be seen by other people. And instead of being repulsed. She presses in. In love. And her love is just a small. Figment of the love of God through Jesus. Jesus sees all my sins, all the brokenness in my life, and he doesn't step back and recoil. He presses in and says, yeah, I can heal you. You're mine. I love you. And we can change this. He sees me honestly, and he ch- covers me with grace. I don't need to make myself better Jesus has done that for me. I don't need to look to myself. The answer is in him. Jesus is better than others, where others will disappoint us. They will be inconsistent. We are all failures in different ways. We experience it personally. We'll experience it in relationships. We can't put the burden of expectation on people, but Jesus is consistent. He is steadfast. He will never change. His shoulders are big enough to carry the burdens of our desires, our satisfaction, our security, all of that. He is enough in ways that other people can never be enough. Jesus is better than the pleasures of this world. And this sounds weird to you, but part of the whole message of the Bible is that God is delightful. Psalm 16, I think it's verse 30, says, There are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Christianity is not about letting go of your satisfactions and desires and trying to get rid of those. It's about finding true satisfaction from the author of life. We find that in Jesus. These things around us we can enjoy. These things around us we should not say, oh, they're terrible, they're inherently evil, run away. We should just never make them ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And if we turn and we find satisfaction in Him... Our humanity is not sapped. It's actually restored. We become more human and joyful as we delight in Him. And then finally, Jesus is better than heartless religion. Focusing on Christ takes my focus off of me and all the things that I need to do or all the ways that I am awesome and puts it on Him. That's the whole point of the message of grace, the gospel take your eyes off of yourself you've been granted life because of what christ has done his life his death his resurrection it's not about all the things that you do to earn favor with god that can never happen it's about what he has done for you and given it to you as a gift when i realized that i fell in love with a man who i'd never seen and it was the weirdest thing that happened to me and the rest of my life has been growing and knowing him more and more, and I would never trade it for anything else. I feel more alive and peaceful. It's a rocky road, and I still screw up, and I've shared some of those ways that I still turn away. But overall, I love Jesus more and more because he's a delight to me. He satisfies me. He gives me peace. He gives me everything I need. If we go back to that image, it's like all of us are on this big salt expanse sea, Just like those sailors from the whale ship Essex eating that hardtack bread, slowly dehydrating ourselves more and more. And yet God in mercy sends his son on a rescue boat with kegs full of cool, refreshing water and says, hey, I've got something for you. Come receive, come drink deeply, find life. We need to turn from empty wells, leaky wells to trust Jesus. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song of worship to close out our night. Almighty God, Lord, you see us perfectly. You know all the ways that we are wont to turn away from you. And yet, in mercy and in love, you reach out to us to warn us, but then also provide for us. Thank you, God, for the ways that you open our eyes to the dangers that are in our own hearts and in our own lives. As we walk forward, I pray that each one of us would find that Jesus is not just some past religious figure, He's not just some theoretical belief, but He is a real person who's come to meet our heart's brokenness and heal it. We love you, our King. We pray these things in your name. Amen.